This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, I am fired up. This story is unbelievable. It's a Bloomberg exclusive. Uh, I was reading in this morning and I'm like, what? Whoa. So it's a whoa moment. Uh, when SEC Chairman Jay Clayton handed a policy win to corporate executives this month, he pointed to a surprising source of support, a mailbag full of encouragement from ordinary Americans. Hmm, was it really? Joining us now to talk about is Zach Meider. He's our projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Jason is so right. When there's a story by Zach, like everybody has to read it because we just want to know what's going on. Um, what happened here, Zach? Uh, so Jay Clayton cited all these letters from a Marine vet, an Army vet, a single mom, almost kind of like a potpourri of uh, mom and pop, you know, ordinary Americans who were all voicing the same uh, the same input about how he needed to kind of shift corporate power in favor of corporations and against investors. Because that's usually how Main Street people think. It's like, you know, I just wish corporations had more power. Uh, that's right. So we looked at <laughs> we looked at some of the uh, yeah, I picked up on that a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. So it looked like yeah. Middle America was supporting. Yes. Was like, we're in. Like, go, Jay, go. So, and, what, and what was it that the SEC ruled on? Uh, they ha- it has to do with how hard it is to uh, propose a n- resolution to vote on at the company's annual meeting. They made it a little bit harder to vote on that. And then they put in new rules uh, a- against these firms called proxy advisors to make it a little more difficult for them to rule against corporate management. So it was a win for corporate America. Yes. If you, if you are a big corporation, it makes it a little harder for investors to push you around, tell you what to do. If you're an investor who wants to you know, um, push up, push back against the corporation makes it a little bit harder. And it looked like America was supporting it. Well, it, there are these, these letters that sounded like a real cross-section of, you know, the heartland here. And so we looked at these seven letters in particular, and then we looked at the broader, you know, hundreds of letters that were sent in. And these seven letters were basically, there was something fishy about all seven of them. So like one, there's this uh, advocacy group in Washington that was kind of uh, you know, taking some money from the um, some of the companies behind this this uh, effort to push this new rule, and it turns out that so one writer is the brother of the guy who runs that group, and another is his cousin, and another is uh, the the in laws of another guy who helps run the group, and then there were people who said they they hadn't actually written the letter, they didn't know anything about it. Or when we talked to them, they didn't seem to know the first thing about the issue, right. let alone have a have a viewpoint on it. And there were situations, which is very disturbing, where someone looked at a letter and said, never seen this before, and yet, that is my signature. Yes, that was one where she said, you've got the wrong, you know, someone else by, got by the, this the name, you've got the, the wrong, wrong Pauline. One, wrong Pauline. And, and then when we show her the letter, she says, yep, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of crazy. Uh, and so who ultimately, you've alluded to this a little bit, who ultimately was underneath this as you dug into this effort to essentially sway mm-hmm. the SEC's opinion? Right. So all these groups are, there's kind of an aligned bunch of groups that are all kind of 
the if you kind of try to follow the money up the trail, it leads to the National Association of Manufacturers, and in particular, some corporations that are members of the National Association of Manufacturers. Two of the most outspoken have been Exxon and Chevron on this issue. So these are oil companies, so they have a lot, um, they have a big uh, stake in this debate because they're the ones that get all these climate change resolutions that are very pesky and bothersome. They get um, the proxy advisory firms telling them they should separate the chairman and chief executive, which is something that Exxon has fought for years. Um, but the proxy advisory firms tell their fund manager clients, "You should vote for this. This is a good. This is a good, uh, you know, a, a good resolution." I was thinking two things. Yay, America! Writing letters to policymakers do make a difference, right? They get noticed. They get read. And then number two, uh, fraud. You know, fraud <laughs> found not only on the internet. Like it can be in just a simple letter. So, what does the SEC say to all of this? In your reporting, I'm curious what kind of response they've come back to. Well, with you. so most federal rulemaking has some kind of public input process, right? And it's it's routinely gamed in one way or another. And that might be anything from a celebrity saying, hey, you should click on this link on a website and and it'll automatically send a letter about net neutrality right. or something. Which John happened, Oliver. Yes, millions of times that happened. And in some ways, that's that's a kind of indicator that people at least care enough to click on something right. or like that celebrity enough. And, and know what they're supporting, hopefully. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not, right? These were different, though. These weren't... Um, you know, thousands or millions of duplicates. These were ones that really appeared to be legit. They talked about their individual situation. They gave their name and address. It, it's it kind of at a first glance looked like, wow, this has got to be a real person. And the names did correspond to real people right. who exist in the world. It's just many of them were kind of somebody's cousin or didn't really recognize why why anyone had sent a letter on their just behalf. Just very quickly, 20 seconds, how much of that really does have sway, whether it's letters, whether it's online campaigns? That's a good question. Did Jay Clayton cite these things because he was swayed by them or because he wanted to make uh, these proposals appear more popular with the general public when really it was about investors versus corporations. Either way, they're not real. And we should point out, David Weston talked with Jay Clayton earlier, and it, when asked, uh, Clayton said, quote, we welcome input in all ways on this issue where there are a lot of different views and a lot of different interests. We encourage people to come in and talk to us, send us their comments. So he sort of didn't answer the question <laughs> in a lot of ways. Fantastic reporting, Zach Miter, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner here at Bloomberg. His latest story, SEC chairman cites fishy letters in support of policy change. Guess it's a must read. trip over him. They to do get to talk to him. I'm just going to tell you, I've it's seen it true. happen. We've seen it happen. It happened yeah. right in front of us. That's just, just who he right is. Ooh, ain't got no hope. I know all right. Well, investors in Home Depot roaming away from that name today after earnings. That stock, as we said, down a little more than 5%. Let's get into it with Ken Leon. He is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research for CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone. So, Ken, we look at this name, Home Depot, as something of a bellwether, especially when it comes to spending on homes and how the consumer is feeling. But we also know, because we talked to you and you're very smart, that it's a little more complicated than that. Take us inside the numbers and what we should be reading from what we heard from Home Depot. So for the investor, this has always been a core holding. And relative to the turbulent retail industry, it's been viewed to be quality. Getting into the numbers, 
We downgraded the stock in July from hold to sell, reiterated our sell today. Our target is 210. Most of the street consensus is 235. And there was a disappointment in terms of the top line for sales growth. Home Depot kind of uses the flag and saying it's the investment of online platform, getting their large contractors of the pro segment uh, to be using that to drive sales. We think differently. Uh, what we see here really since August, uh, look, rates have risen. Home equity loans rates are higher. Uh, the large ticket home improvements might be abating. And we're going into the slowest six months ahead for Home Depot or home improvement. Finally, on valuation, uh, the stock's expensive. Uh, generally, it trades just about 20 times earnings. It's above that. Uh, and particularly the consensus target. So I think this is a breather. This is a quality company. Uh, my concern would be affordability to, to really replace your kitchen or master bedroom with higher home equity loan rates. So it's interesting, though. So when did you go to a sell rating on this, this July. new? We July, you said? July. July. Okay, because it's up about, what, 6% since the beginning of August. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so but so you're going to stick to this rating because you think, what, the rest of the year is going to be a tough one? Uh, we're, you know, you're not going to see stronger sales than this quarter for another few quarters. You know, that's the seasonality. We've had really strong housing starts. We've seen mm -hmm. strong home total existing home sales. We're not seeing the throughput into home improvement as I like, and I think it's for the reasons that home equity loans are going higher. And in order for local contractors uh, to make an order with Home Depot, they have to have a pretty active book from households. And I think you're going to see a pause there. And so we talk about Lowe's when we talk about Home Depot. We'll hear from Lowe's tomorrow. Uh, sort of stitch these two together because I, I'm, I'm thinking that the last time we talked, you were feeling differently about these two names in comparison. Yeah, that's right. And, and with Lowe's, if you look back early in the year, um, there was a quarterly earnings miss. Stock went down significantly. Uh, the, prior, the next quarter was better than expected. Uh, we don't have that consistency, but they have, you know, more drivers to improve earnings. Um, I think, you know, for home improvement, both of these companies do take market share from smaller businesses. Uh, but again, I think the macro is, um, you know, we would like to see strong sales from Lowe's as well. Uh, they have other execution issues, you know, whereas Home Depot is in a more advanced stage in terms of connecting with the shopper. So what does it tell us maybe, Ken, too, about where we are in this economic cycle? We've got a great piece upcoming in the magazine by our economics editor, Peter Coy, you know, that takes us back three months ago and the world was falling apart. Everybody was talking about recession. And while things may might not be going gangbusters right now, they're definitely feeling a lot better than they were, you know, go back to the dog days of summer and August in particular. So I do wonder, Home Depot, uh, we do watch it for what it tells us about the more broad, broader economic cycle. What does it tell you? Just got about 30 seconds here. Um, we're in a strong housing market, but for home improvement, Home Depot said it's just stable. Uh, so then again, you know, for the 196 million U.S. households, uh, they may not be improving their homes as much as Home Depot likes. We like housing stocks. We like 
um, MDC Holdings, and we also like Taylor Morrison. We're getting double-digit growth out of most of the builders. We're not seeing that with home improvement. That's really interesting. That's a really uh, important nuance. Thank you so much. Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research over at CFRA Research. He joined us on the phone from New York. You know, Carol, it takes someone from outside of New York to remind us about some of the good things How great New York uh, is. happening in New York, whether it's New York City Marathon or Broadway. Jeff Crumpleman, back with us, Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Equities for Mariner Wealth Advisors, based out in Cincinnati, here with us in New York City today. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Um, so tell us what's going on in the markets. And to set the table, We've had this discussion now a couple times today because we were taping our weekend show with Peter Coy, our chief economics uh, editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. And we were talking about this notion that if you went back to August, like things didn't feel great in the markets. People were really worried about recession. You know, we were really thinking that the rest of the year was going to be unpleasant when it came to the to the markets and earnings and all of that. And now here we are in <laughs> mid-November. Yeah. And things feel it's like pretty it didn't good. Happen. <laughs> like, yeah. What happened? Yeah. Well, you know, we've seen it happen repeatedly going all the way back to 2009. Mm. And, and what we refer to as the August through October period this year, that's kind of the amen corner, if you will, right? Seasonally, it's really bad. So it's an Augusta I National actually, reference, it, it, right? Well, I, call, I call it the like Carol, I don't know, crisis or something because I always go away like mid -Oct yeah. August, August for, yeah. and then the market sells off. Yeah. Right. It's it, like, it, and we it definitely has to do with times. you. I'm know, pretty I sure. I know. I know. Sorry. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it sounds like a broken record with regard to what put us in that crabby mood, but it really was trade and what's the Fed going to do and all this kind of stuff. And so what we find is these wall of worry items get people pessimistic, and we call it the wash, rinse, repeat cycle. That's the wash cycle, all the pessimism and the fear, and then when the data is released, the economic data is not tragic. It ain't great, yeah. right? but it ain't tragedy, and then you get this big rally. Well, and what's and interesting, so, it, is, it allows the Fed, who you know back in December had talked about raising rates several times to totally you know, uh, reverse their course, do a 180, right? And See, make it a very easy money, low money environment or low cost of money environment. It's one of the reasons why I'm so glad to be here this time of year, this year, because I was here about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And back then the Fed wasn't talking like that. Yeah. And we were right. fearful that they were going to hike to infinity. And this was not the city of cheer. This was the city of fear. I think yeah. it was the stock market of fear. Right. And so that set us up. And it's so wonderful to be here now because it ain't great shakes. But we're going into this final quarter and into 2020 with easier comparisons, a accommodative Fed, and not disaster on trade, not, not solved, but not disaster. And that's a really nice setup for going into 2020. All right. So we've been talking a little bit about retail in the context of Home Depot today. I know consumer discretionary is an area that you look at pretty closely and specifically some retailers. What do you make of some opportunities there? Well, we are slightly overweight, but we're very selective. And so I think three of the names that I talk about often are Target, Best Buy, and Lululemon. Yeah, and we I talk to about them often too. They're yeah. great names. They are great names. And so I think- And off the charts this year. 
Well, they are, but they weren't off the charts if you no. back up yeah. the, the previous three years, really. Right. And so you had this great valuation and wonderful execution. And I got to tell you, we're not, you know, it's not like they're undiscovered. I know Lululemon's up, I think, 60%-ish. 78%. 78% this year. And, and this is one where my wife, Debbie, repeatedly yeah. told me, Jeff, you've got to look at Lululemon. You guys, right. I mean, get your act together. And, you know, eventually, like always, Eventually, we come you around. guys listen yeah. to us. It <laughs> takes a while, eventually. but eventually you get there. But there's, there's 16 <laughs> catalysts there, not one. Yeah. There's 16. And their growth rate in their key core product, pants, of all things, athleisure, is over 10%, right. and they're growing online 30%. Jason and there's I, an international story yeah. there, and it really is, to your point, it's an execution story it's in, execution. in a lot of ways. They were very poorly executing for a long time and now uh, seem to have it in gear. But talk to us about Target, because that's another name uh, that seems to be an execution story in the face of a, a tricky retail And I'm just going to say they're up 67% this year, and you've got a 2.4% dividend yeah we came into that name right before it popped 20 percent on its its earnings nice. and it took us a while to get comfortable with it we just thought people would finally appreciate it so it's grown 10 percent, just like walmart but it's priced at 16 and a half times whereas walmart's priced at 23 times they got rid of canada they got online growing like crazy wonderful merchandising traffic is increasing yeah comps are in that three to five percent area what's not to like and a two point Six, I think, percent dividend yield grown the dividend 30 percent, 20 to 30 percent. It's just a, a staple stock. They report earnings tomorrow. I've got to say, as a yeah. shopper, because I certainly when my daughter was little, I was in there all the time, and then I kind of backed away from it. But they have, I've kind of gone back and I've ordered stuff online, picked it up in the yeah. store, yes. and they've remodeled the store. So they it's a have. very, very different look. They have. And, and I would say, just in general, on this, I saw the headlines today retail wreck, I yeah. think. Well, you know what? Kohl's might be a wreck, but Home Depot, if you adjust for lumber pricing, their comps were really good. In fact, they mm. came in better than mm. expected if you make some adjustments for that. So would you be buying Home Depot, which has taken a bit of a hit today? Would you be buying I would be weakness? holding Home Depot. I okay. think there are other, we, we like DR Horton, for example, as a right. home builder and think that says, you have yeah. maybe better value there. And there are ways to play. We do think that housing is a big reason and a surprise strength in the economy, which bodes well for earnings next year and for consumer next year. Over in financials, uh, talk to us about ICE, because that's a name that is very interesting to, to lots of folks and probably not as well understood. Talk to us about that. Yeah, you know, it's a pretty simple thing. We were just uh, in the financials, the more cyclicals like the Morgan Stanley's yeah. and the Bank of America's, they've had a really nice run. But going back to August, we were saying, you know, I don't think we want to reduce our financial exposure here, but how about getting a name that actually takes advantage of volatility? Right. So they own the New York Stock Exchange and are tethered to various commodi mm -hmm. commodities contracts, uh, commodities brokerage uh, business. And they also sell data, all this data on pricing and these different uh, asset classes that people want. Right. So you're getting consistent growth and dividend growth of 20, 30 percent um, in a name that ac actually is kind of counter cyclical, if you will, when things are rough and, and trading's volatile, they take advantage of that. So we thought it was a nice complement in a portfolio context to, to what we owned there. Just also, a good, consistent growth. Also, nice run up about 25 percent this year. And yes. again, you've got a, a little bit of a dividend there as yes. well. Yes, yes, yes. All right, one more name, just 30 seconds that yeah. you would uh, point out to people that sort of plays into this type of market? 
Yeah, I, I would. So within technology, you know, it's always nice to have the household names. We've talked about a lot of household names. Yeah. How about a company called 26? It looks like, you know, you're going to the Super Bowl and it's advertising, you know, some Super so Bowl true. thing. Um, they actually get their name from the periodic table, and these are two groups on the periodic table of chemicals and elements, I, you wow. should say. So they are tethered to 5G electronic vehicles, laser uh, for facial recognition, and that kind of stuff. 20% growth rate, 12 times. Really attractive name. All right. Great stuff, as always. Love catching up with you here in New York City. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors based out in Cincinnati. In your eyes, the light, the heat. Well, in your eyes is apparently where Corby Parker wants to be on your eyes, not just sort of adjacent to them. They, uh, just Carol, want, they want to be on it. On them. On your eyes. We're talking uh, about contacts. We're talking about contacts. We're talking about putting little pieces of plastic or silicone like on your eyes. They're getting in, into a new business. The co-CEO, he was actually on Bloomberg Television earlier today. Uh, that's Dave Gilboa. Here's what he had to say about this new business. Uh, we're super excited to be able to introduce a daily contact lens um, at a much uh, better price point than you can find elsewhere in the market. And, um, and it's really the first opportunity for um, contact lens wearers that um, have been wearing extended wear, so two-week or monthly lenses, uh, really their first opportunity to enter into an affordable uh, daily contact lens. And that's Warby Parker co-CEO Dave Gilboa speaking to Bloomberg Television earlier. It's at the heart of a feature story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Austin Carr sporting some Warby Parker glasses. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker when studio. He reports, he's They're, either like going to someplace cold because he wants to be all in or he's wearing the glasses. He, he just does it all. He's man. hip or warm, I like know. whatever the story totally requires. Uh, sometimes it involves model trains. Did you like, try contact lenses? You don't know. Them? So I've actually never worn contact lenses oh, okay. in my life. This is my first pair of glasses. They are Warby, and I I, I do they think we great, should know the they're tor- tortoiseshell yeah. uh, style. So just for everyone out there. All right. So let me ask you this question because this gets to the, to the heart of the story. What was your like process like? Did you go into a store? Did they send them to you at home? Because that's at the core of how Warby Parker has sort of revolutionized the way we think about buying stuff. I, I think the way I went about this, uh, I mean, I've been reporting on Warby Parker for a number of years now. Yeah. I think I'm really the target demographic, someone who was very much fearful of the process, sort of intimidated by going and trying on glasses or going to an optometry uh, office to sort of get upsold on a doctor about what should be on my face. Um, so Warby Parker became known in the retail landscape for creating this seamless direct-to-consumer brand, meaning they sold glasses online. You get about five pairs in the mail that you could try on for free. Free, and then send back the ones you didn't like. It was a really seamless for free, for right? free, for yeah. free. And the one you purchased would be $95, which is a lot lower than other glasses on the market. So they built their whole brand about this, especially during the retail apocalypse at other retailers were closing. They started expanding into physical retail. So they have a, about 112 stores right now, and they've really been fast growing. And their next big push is actually into contacts. It's called Scout. It's a low cost uh, daily disposable contact. And the big idea is whether or not you can actually make uh, contacts as cool as glasses. I'm not sure. I don't know if I had contacts, but I look smarter. Would I less look less smart without these glasses? What do you think? Well, I don't, I, you look great in, in your glasses, but your point is well taken though, in the sense that there's not, 
there is it's not really the gamification but it's more the idea like it is a fun process when i got my warby parkers like they sent me you know five pairs at home you know we had some people over we just happened to have some people over the house last night that night i was like doing a little fashion show there was a 12 year old who was like do not ever wear those glasses again and so i got a different pair uh, obviously but you can't do that with contacts you cannot it's actually a lot more uh, challenging not only uh from a regulatory standpoint because it's uh something that you know is regulated as a class two medical device in the same way as uh, a lot of other, uh, in terms of the telemedicine aspect of this. Um, But then there's also just the medical side. I mean, you have to go to a doctor to get your prescription. If it's not exact, it can lead to all type of uh, eye infections, eye diseases. Um, So that's going to be one of the big challenges that as they roll out this product. I I have to say, I love my ophthalmologist and I just actually went for an eye checkup and I don't wear glasses normally, um, but sometimes I need something for distance. And, you know, he played with it where I might just wear one contact and stuff. And I wonder how they're going to be able to do that with what they're trying to do. It's complicated when it gets to contacts. Incredibly complicated. Uh, One of the big things they're doing is building out uh, a huge eye exam suite and optometry division inside. So they're hiring about uh, up to 80 optometrists, I think, this year. They're adding 40 more eye exam rooms within their uh, stores. And that's because not just 40% of their customers wear contacts, but about 70% of people get eyewear at the same time as they get their prescription. Right. So they've been losing out on this massive market, which historically, if they go, if a customer goes to their shops and they say, hey, I don't have a prescription, that means sending them to, to a competitor to get right. that fulfilled. So they're they're looking to expand by just growing more of that eyewear vision care in-house. Right, and they're going vertical, notably, instead of getting into the other businesses that have really become the Warby Parker of shaving, sneakers, mattresses, mattresses, like taking that platform. I mean, it's an incredible platform that they've created, right? They they really, I mean, one of the things that Dave and uh, his co-founder, Neil Blumenthal talks about is just the moat they've built is around their brand. Uh, Just not just the seamless customer experience, but just sort of the the idea that the intangible brand qualities that you get from wearing this, it's part of your identity. I'm part of the Warby Parker tribe. There's a retail theater side of this. So could they use it to leverage uh, going into these other fields that other unicorns have really taken advantage of Allbirds, Casper, uh, uh, Glossier, Harry's. Uh, there's just a ton of them out there. Some started by their their uh, former employees. Right. Away is a luggage company, the Warby Parker of luggage, and they're now worth $1.4 billion. Yeah. Very cool stuff, and it's really a deep dive into what they're doing. And you asked some really good questions, pertinent questions about maybe they're too late in expanding the mile. And you also have some great insights into these two characters that created this yeah, company. And how they so, manage the company and where yes. it may be going. Austin Carr, always a treat. Uh, tech reporter check out his story it's in the upcoming edition of the magazine it's online and on the bloomberg terminal right now i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive home excuse me i want to drive just drive baby it's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is George Ball. He's chairman and CEO of Sanders Morris Harris. They've got over $2 billion in assets under management. And he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio right here in New York on this Tuesday. Nice to see you. Good to see you. So I'm curious, this market environment, um, 
George, how do you see it? Because it's funny, we were, we've been talking throughout our broadcast. There's a story that we've got in Business Week magazine that's going to be coming out later in this week that goes, three, three months ago, we thought the world was falling apart, right? Uh, we saw the markets pull back. We thought, you know, we we're talking recession big time. We were worried about the inverted yield curve. Here we are three months later, and people aren't talking that way. And you've got the major market averages, you know, repeatedly hitting highs despite kind of a mixed market today. How do you see this market? The old-fashioned view was that the market had ripples, waves, and tides, as I remember. Um, and things are still ripples, waves, and tides, but they're different. The, the, the ripples that move the market every day are the Trump tweet tariff trade tirades. Uh, and if anybody can predict those, uh, I doubt even the president himself can, uh, that's what you could trade to. But you can't trade against the flip of a coin, and those are the ripples that move the market So, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So then if you look at what you described, which is sort of a gentle wafting up like a leaf in the uh, fall air, uh, there's an odd phenomenon that people really don't talk about very much. 50% of all of the trading in the equity markets is done algorithmically these mm -hmm. days. It's 50%. Wow. Nice middle-class people like me who buy stocks and, and just own them don't impact prices. It's the people who actually trade that do. Algorithms have a, an upside bias to them. So there's some technical reasons for that. A lot of it's just animal spirits. I feel good today. I'd rather feel good. And right. so, so the people who actually write the algorithms, the AI, uh, would rather feel good that, than bad. In the absence of anything else, therefore, the algorithmic pension for upside uh, uh, preference is going to make the markets go up. And that's what's happening in the absence of anything major fundamental earnings. So a biasness, you're saying, in those algorithms, which control 50% of the trading Absolutely. on any given day. Absolutely, yes. Huh. Uh, now, there are human-built biases uh, right. because algorithms are built by humans. But there's a definite buy side, upside, as opposed well, to sell and short uh, preference in them. My husband and I always have this conversation at home that we feel like there's a consensus more so for the market to go up because more people kind of benefit as a result versus short selling. It's just a conversation we have, but it's kind of more people win if the market goes up versus if the market goes down. Carolyn, there's, as you bring it up, there's another calendar factor to it. Uh, most of the nice Wall Streeters like me get, get paid a bonus, and the bonus is based on results. Bonus is basically generally paid at the end of the year. In a year like this, when the S&P is up about 25%, right. those bonuses are pretty big, and a good deal of energy in the fourth quarter goes into protecting the bonus right. that I've got if it's not lost. And so, so you hmm. see, in addition to everything else, in the fourth quarter, if the traders broadly uh, are in the money because their positions are up, they may buy more of what they already own because they like it and also because there is an element of self-bonus preservation right. in it. It's, right. it's, a big, it's a big number. Protecting. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, because you've alluded to some, it feels like tectonic shifts that we're seeing, some inflection points, if you will, just in, in Wall Street in general. 
we were out at the Schwab conference a couple weekend weeks ago, uh, you know, talking about zero commission, this sort of zero commission world. You started your career as a stockbroker, I believe, at EF Hutton uh, back in the day. Like this business has changed a lot. The, bus- the business has changed a lot, and generally for the better. Yeah. Um, I was a, I go back so fossilized far that I can remember when there were fixed commission rates and was actually one of the authors of the uh, original fee-based programs, right. uh, which today are being emphasized, some might say pushed, I would say emphasized, by, by Wall Street in, in general. Now, there is a problem with zero commissions, huge change in the industry, but you know, Wall Streeters don't work for nothing. Uh, right. That may be shocking to everybody, but, but, but if it's not, we don't work for nothing. Not we, shocking to Elizabeth we, we, Warren, but go on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's prescient. Uh, you know, you know, we, we get paid uh, by selling order flow. We get paid by lending securities for people to use. We get paid a lot of money by money market funds that pay the firms whose customers own their mar- money market funds rather than paying more interest to the, the clients. I'm not saying there's anything wrong or perfidious about that, but if you want to talk about hidden fees, those are, are really hidden uh, it, from, from any sort of uh, transparency. So add it all up for us, because here I'm listening to George talk about the algorithms, and we do increasingly talk about the role of machines in our trading market. And I do wonder about the retail investor, the average, I hate to use the word average, because I don't think anybody's average. (laughs) But I mean, you know, normal individual investors, I do wonder how much, based on what you're telling me, all these different facets are being kind of really pushed out of the market and not really being able to take advantage of the returns, or do they get to ride this wave? Uh, as long as the wave is upward, but it's a wave, it's not the tide. As long as the, the, the wave is upward, retail investors are fine, institutional investors are fine. I think there is a third uh, tide that, that, that's, that's more dangerous. The bull market is 10 years old. That's a long time. A decade of Upward going prices makes everybody complacent, and that bull is very long in the tooth. Nothing to do with the Fed, nothing to do with tax policy or or what have you, but the consumer can only carry markets for so long, and after a while, uh, you you think, all right, things are going to topple, and I'm not sure retail investors, or institutional investors for that matter, are are ready for it. You, you, You get lulled by a decade's worth of everything's fine. Right. Right. Uh, What a treat to catch up with you. Thank you so much. George Ball, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, the CEO of Sanders, Morris Harris. A long career on Wall Street. Some great historical perspective and current perspective as well. Joining us here in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.